morning, Southbridge. Those here, those in Theater 14, welcome. We're glad you're here. If this is your first time here, thanks for coming and checking out Southbridge. We hope that you feel welcome. And we ask one thing of you this morning, and that is if you take time to fill out your connection card, which you can find attached to your bulletin, we'd be really grateful to hear how did you hear about Southbridge, who invited you. Um, and uh, you can take that filled out card to the first time guest kiosk where we have a gift for you. It's just our way of saying thank you for being here today. This is your home church. Welcome. We're glad that you're back. It's our desire uh, to have the Lord's renown on our hearts and on our lips. And we just want to make much of Jesus Christ. Our desire as a church is to connect people to Jesus, even those that are already connected to him, to continually connect people to Jesus so that he can do his work of life change. Uh, not just um, self-fulfillment or just a better life, but a life that glorifies him is the desire. So we teach from God's word every week. If you have a copy of the scriptures, I'm glad that you bring it every week. If you don't, we'd love to give you a Bible. It'll be our gift to you. From time to time, people ask, what's happening during the week with Southbridge? We have community groups that we offer. These are groups that meet in the home, decentralizing ministry from the theater into homes because ministry happens everywhere. And these people gather together to experience the one another's mandated to us in the scriptures and to study God's word together, studying about uh, practicing and putting into practice the messages that we hear on Sunday, meeting needs for one another, caring for one another. We also have a ministry meeting this Thursday night. I want to welcome you to come to Celebrate Recovery to hear the story story, a testimony of one of our own, a member of our church, Kelly. Please come. That's uh, Thursday night, 7 p.m. at the church office. You don't want to miss that. You'd be really blessed to come hear that story. This morning, we continue on our series called Relate, and our lead pastor, Scott Lear, has asked me to speak about the employer-employee relationships, really a theology of work. And I've been uh, thinking over these things for the last several days, and uh, we need God's help. So will you pray with me? Lord, for this morning, thank you. Thank you for your word. You have not left us here alone to guess what it means to follow you. Lord, we believe that you are active, moving, that you are working in the hearts and lives of those that are desiring to draw near to you. And Lord, you've even uh, called upon the hearts of those that were far from you and brought them near to you, Lord. We desperately need you this morning. We need your spirit to fall fresh on us this morning so that we may be ready and attuned uh, to whatever you have for us this morning according to your word. We ask that you'd be our teacher. We ask, Lord, that you would leave, uh, allow us to leave change as a result of an encounter with you by your word, that you'd encourage and instruct us this morning, that you would correct us if need be, that you would convict us that unto life change, Lord, that we would live differently as a result of coming uh, to grow an understanding of who you are and what you desire for us, Lord. I pray for anyone, Lord, this morning that has not submitted their life to you, Lord, that they have not found the peace and joy and mercy and grace that is only found in your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, that today would be the day that they would say they want you, that they want you to be their master, that they want uh, you to, to rescue them, to save them, Lord. So, Lord, I just ask that even in spite of whatever is said this morning, Lord, that you, your spirit would work. And, Lord, but I ask that you would guide us this morning, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we are continuing this Relate series. We've looked at different um, stages, stations of life, different relationships that exist. We've talked about motherhood, friendship, singleness, marriage, and today we're talking about work. And really, specifically, how Christian employers and employees relate to one another, how they relate to their work, how they ought to work, and how we relate to others at work. 
And so I don't know what you think of when you think about work. Maybe you think about the fact that you don't you dread tomorrow, or maybe you're thinking about the fact that you're looking for work. Your full-time job is looking for work. When I was uh, first given this assignment to consider what to, to share and what God's Word has to say about this, I began thinking about the different jobs I've had in the past, and it's not a pretty sight. Do you remember your first job? Mine was working at a Christian camp that had a miniature golf course, and I was to run the miniature golf course at like age 13 or 14, and my payment wasn't cash because it was a ministry. It was uh, really out of coupons that I could use at the, at the ice cream shop, which is synonymous for me. My paycheck and ice cream are really the same. So that was a great job in a sense, even though no one ever came, and I just sat there, and it was called the, the, the rec hut, the recreational hut. You sat in there to give people their gear, and I would just like count down hours and like draw lines through like I was in prison. And uh, it was pretty morbid. But uh, another job I had after that in, in the high school, and I started realizing actually during the first service that all these jobs I've had were actually given to me by my parents. I never sought them out myself, so I need to go talk to them about that. Uh, that's Parents do this, especially dads, don't they? Do you remember, fellas, if your dad found a job for you that you weren't actually looking for? I worked in an onion factory. Uh, we bagged onions in 50-pound bags and stacked them on pallets. And the tough, tough part about that place, it was just real dim. There was spiders in the corners, I remember, which I'm fearful of. Those came after sin, I believe spiders did. But um, I remember the fact that no one spoke the same language as me in the room that I was working in. All I would hear is like, blah, 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 Jason. <laughs> and uh, I didn't think they were, like, trying to use words of encouragement, you know. Yeah. That, and I didn't like onions either, which was terrible. If it was an ice cream factory, I would have praised my father. But I only lasted there three days. I got so worked about going to work, I hated it so much. I think I got a fever. I got really sick. And uh, still high strung, just like two weeks ago when I was preaching. The same. And I've always been. The next job after that, uh, uh, my dad found for me later in time, was working at a nail factory, boxing nails. The currency there really was just trying to get mats to double up under your feet because you'd be standing all day. It was terrible. People just lived for their smoke break, and I was just living to get out of there. We were just not on the same page. In fact, it was interesting that people could have 15-minute smoke breaks, but I could never have like a Coke or a Pepsi break. I had to keep working. I didn't think that was fair. So I didn't stand up to anybody because I was 16 and boxing nails. And I felt guilty for boxing nails because I don't know anything about, I can't hammer a nail actually. I can't use screws and things like that. So I felt like I was a hypocrite for selling something that I didn't know how to. Anyway, that's my own problem. And then I uh, worked for an excavating company that would build curbs and streets, and my job was to shovel curb. When the street was, the the dirt got over on the new curb that was freshly put out there, I had to shovel the curb off, and I'd do miles and miles and miles of that. And um, that job was not of the Lord. So we're only going to talk about jobs that are of the Lord today. No. This common denominator, the theme of all those jobs really was that I was a part of them, and I just really had a terrible attitude. What's the first job you ever had? What's the job you have now? And before we dig into our text, I just want to give a couple principles, a theology of work, if you will. And if you're a note taker, these are some um, thoughts. We don't usually do messages this way, but there's several things I want to share first, and then we'll open our text and see where our lives lay on top of the text and what God has for us and how we ought to live differently only by his power for his glory. So I want to give you a couple thoughts to write down just about work, and I want you to think about them this week. Ready? So number one, we're talking about work before we can dig into why work matters, and that's really the big point is we're going to try to answer the question, why does work matter? But we have to talk about work first in and of itself. And number one, the first point about work is this, is that God works. Before we talk about our work, we need to know an understanding of what the Bible has to say about work. And number one, God works. In fact, the scriptures say this, 
that on the seventh day God finished his work and he had done, that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. This is Genesis chapter 2. And I don't know if creating all things cost God energy. I don't have his mind. I don't know everything about his omnipotence, his, his all-powerfulness. Um, but we know that the scriptures in, in English, in our understanding, in our finite minds, it relates to what God did to, to work. That God works. And Jesus says this, and then the New Testament, in John chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus is recorded as saying that my Father is working until now, and I am working. So you have God the Father who works, God the Son who is Jesus Christ, who is himself God works. In fact, Christ is called the Creator, um, that in him and by him all things were created, and being held together, that would require strength, wouldn't it? And we know that the Holy Spirit is at work and works in the lives of people. So we know that God in the Trinity works. In fact, we know that God is the ultimate example of one who is at work, which then gives work itself meaning, significance, and dignity. Point number two before we get into our text, and I'm going to give five actually. So today's a, a bit academic, but point number two, God calls us to work. He calls people to work, both generally and specifically. We see this again in Genesis. Um, we see that um, people, only people are image bearers of God. These are the only created things that bear God's image and his likeness. People are, humans are. And that they're called to work. We know that work existed before sin, if you can believe it or not. Adam and Eve, the first humans, were called to work in the garden to take care of it, to subdue the earth. All humans are to subdue and rule the earth. Other created things don't rule humans. Humans are to rule the earth as God rules them in all things. So generally, God calls humans to work. We know that God gave Adam the job to name every animal. You know, and I wonder what it was like for God to hand that over to Adam when he came up with the name of Hippopotamus, what God thought about that. Now you're stretching, Adam, and that's okay. Okay. We're going to call this bug because it bugs me. Real creative, Adam. We're going to call that a fly because it flew. Now you're really, not, you're really not trying, Adam. But generally, God gives a command, this, uh, this understanding that we ought to work. But also specifically... So generally and specifically, we see this, and this is a verse that uh, ought to encourage your heart. It's written to a church that really had a lot of troubles and needed encouraging, which means every church, because every church has people, and all people have problems. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17 reads, Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. So I believe, I believe the scriptures are clear that God in his sovereignty, which means his all-knowingness and in his plan, not that he just knows everything, which doesn't give me every um, piece, but that he also has a plan, that he's working all things to conformity to his will, the scripture teaches, is that within your vocation that God has called you to your vocation. Even if it's just for this season, he's called you to your station in life. You work at IBM, Cisco, Nortel. You're a full-time student. Your job is to work as a student. You're a mother. You're a stay-at-home mom. Your job is to be a mom. These are vocations that I believe that God has established. I really came to realization about this this week, and I really had to figure out a way to share with you what my week was like. Uh, this past week, on Tuesday night, we sent my wife, Amanda, up to near Philadelphia because her dad was having a major surgery on Friday morning. And I was taking care of the first time of my four children, eight-year-old Mia, six-year-old Noah, four-year-old Molly, and two-year-old Ethan. But my kids can't say T-H, so they say Ethan. And sometimes we just say Ethy, which is, that name sounds really weak, I understand, but that's what we do. And uh, so Tuesday night, the plan went great. We took Amanda to the airport and my plan, and I really recognized that um, 
the things that I saw my dad I didn't like when he took care of my brother and I weren't growing up, when my mom was working her way, I'm seeing it myself. Like, my dad, when he does meals, we're not the same tender care back then when I was growing up as my mom does it. Like, if you made a hot dog, you'd, like, put bread instead of a bun and you ketchup on it. And a bun doesn't taste the same as bread, Dad. It's not the same. Okay, that's my problem. But I sense that the same way that I build my meals for my kids build is the same as my wife prepares. It's not the same as my wife preparing a meal for their kids. But Tuesday night went great. Wednesday night went awesome. And uh, then Thursday morning came around. And I got to tell you this, that Thursday may have been the worst day uh, in uh, our family, in the life of our family. Thursday morning, woke up not feeling so well around 9 o'clock. I got the flu. My kids had had the flu the week previous, and they were all better, so we had the confidence that Amanda could leave. And you need to know this, that the longest of time that I've spent by myself with the four kids, other than through the night like sleeping, was eight hours of awake time. So, yeah. <laughs> I've been a school teacher and was with those kids for eight hours, but my own. So we really sent Mommy away on an adventure. Starting not feeling so well on Thursday morning around 9.30, uh, uh, got the flu, so I was preoccupied with the flu. And I, you need to know this, that the flu and I, I do not have the flu gently or in a pretty way. I fill up the house with the volume of my voice. And when I throw up, it's like if we can talk about such things at church, I, everyone's going to know it in my neighborhood. Everyone needs to know that I'm sick right now, Okay. 9.30, started getting sick, and while I was um, participating with the flu, my kids were upstairs. My oldest was away with some friends that um, graciously invited her to come over for the day, and my three youngest were playing upstairs, and I heard running, and then I heard screaming, and I ran upstairs, and my youngest son, Ethan, two-year-old, um, had injured, injured himself. He broke his femur. So then I asked another friend. Uh, I'm just totally out of it. <laughs> And uh, ask another friend to come with the, stay with the two while I take Ethan to the ER in Briar Creek. Then we go from Briar Creek to New Bern Ave, uh, the hospital there. And mommy's in Philly. And I can tell you this. So getting back to the point, this minor point, that God's vocations are specific. I am not mom. That is the truth. And we want mommy around. And I am also not a doctor who can just clearly and plainly say, we're going to have to pull this leg, do this. If it doesn't work, we'll do surgery and go in and talk calmly. I am not calm in such a way. I do not handle my pain or the pain of others. I felt like both my legs were broken by being with him the whole time. And we were just dying for mom. And I can tell you that for those of you that work in, uh, in, in health care and things like that, I'm so grateful that God gave you a mind to grasp such things. That's, on, that's, on, that's his creativity and his purpose. Even if you don't like God or believe that God exists, he's amazing that he's given you such a mind. I believe that God has graciously called each person to the vocation they have. And so eventually, Mommy, uh, she came home a, a day early. The surgery for her father was happening on Friday. She came, and by 9 p.m. Uh, Thursday night, Ethan was in his room with his cast around his waist, down the whole leg that's broken, and halfway down this leg. And... Uh, and then mommy walked in, and I felt like, well, you need to know this. When I proposed to Amanda on Thanksgiving of the year 2000, uh, I w- proposed her right off of a plane. I walked off the plane and just did it right then. When Amanda came off the plane and come at the elevator to the, the hospital, I felt like I was proposing again. I was so relieved that she was here. Oh, I was done. God calls us to our vocation. That's the week I had. Let's go back to the message. Number three here. We're not even to our text yet. Number three. But these are important things to consider. We have to build a framework before we can consider our lives. So number three, God's word addresses those unwilling to work, which is different than unable to work, right? 
We don't want to cause any guilt that God isn't convicting, but unable or unwilling to work. God's word addresses those unwilling to work. According to 1 Timothy 5.8, to be unwilling to work is to be considered one who, was, who has denied the faith, Paul says to Timothy, who was a young pastor. And Paul was helping Timothy with the churches that he was overseeing, and there was people that required benevolence and needed food. And so uh, we see this instruction that uh, if you're not going to work, um, you are worse than one who has said no to God. And Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians to a church that needs help. He writes that if someone is unwilling to work, they shouldn't be given food. Which is really pointing out the principle that work provides for needs. We know that. That's a general principle that work provides for needs and we ought to be willing to work, which is different, again, than unable to work. And Paul was trying to help this church know about their benevolence issues because people needed food. But then he helped them discern by who to give that food to between the attitude by which they were receiving it. Someone that was receiving it just to mooch off the church or the people of the church or those that were just in a really tough spot. There's a difference, isn't there? And let me just say this. To those of you that are unemployed, I want to be really clear with you and I want to invite you to do something. I want you to invite you to find the courage to do something and I want to tell you to take that connection card that's on your bulletin and write your name on the front part and on the back part of it you'll see prayer request. I just want you to write down your name and if you're looking for work, say, I'm looking for work. I need God's help to find work and I'm looking. And I want you to know that there's multiple people that are committed to praying for every prayer request that comes through on those connection cards. I invite everyone to take advantage of them every week. At the end of the service, we have a response team that's here every week. We're still trying to figure out how to utilize that team best. They want to pray with people that have needs and hurts and want God's insight and just to pray with someone that will care for them. So use the response team. Use those response cards. People will pray about that for you. I know that you're willing. And your full-time job right now is to, with tenacity, find that work. Number four, work is hard. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, it changed the nature of work for all time. Did you know that? This means that human work, which used to be only enjoyable, is now filled, the scriptures tell us, with like, things like thorns and thistles and greater toil. Genesis chapter 3 tells us this. Really, the consequence of Adam's sin is that work is hard and marked by difficulties. Not all of us are farmers, of course. But just engaging people and engaging our world, we find that work doesn't come with ease at all times. Work is hard. Producing is hard. Meeting uh, the goal is difficult at times. Work can be hard, and God promises that. And number five, and this is the last point that we'll look at for a while as we look at our text. You following with me? Number five, God's word calls us to work unto his glory. So we're trying to answer the question, why does work matter? And there's, what we're learning from scriptures, there's lots of reasons why work matters. But the ultimate answer, this fifth one right here, kind of guides the others. God's word calls us to work unto his glory. You might have these verses in your heart. They're really similar. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. It's at this point of working being done for God's glory that we see it answers the question, why work matters. And it gives us insight then into the employer-employee relationships and dynamic. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, turn to Ephesians chapter 6 now. Ephesians chapter 6. The book of Ephesians was written by uh, a church planner, an apostle named Paul. 
And he's writing this letter to encourage all these new believers. It's in six chapters in our Bibles. The first three chapters are about who we are in Christ or our identity in Christ. What God says of you once you've accepted Christ as the champion, the savior of your life. That you've recognized that Jesus Christ died and rose again and took the punishment for your sin upon himself. But he didn't just die, he rose again so that you are now in a relationship with the living God. You stand before God, adopted in his family. In fact, chapter one says that you're loved, chosen, blessed, redeemed, sealed, adopted, made alive, all these amazing words. Chapters 1, 2, 3 are about who we are in Christ, and 4, 5, and 6 are about what we do in light of who we are in Christ. If you skip 1, 2, 3 and try 4, 5, and 6 without knowing who you are in Christ, you come off as a moralist, or worse, a legalist, trying to get God's grace by doing Christian doing. You've got to have chapters 1, 2, and 3, and I challenge you to read it this week. Read the whole book this week. So then in chapter 5, verse 18, we get this key verse that says we ought to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're going to accomplish these God-sized things, these commands in Scripture, you've got to have the Holy Spirit of God in your life to pull it off. And how do we do that? We acknowledge Christ as our Savior. We turn our lives over to him, and we ask him to help us do the things he's commanded us to do, and he'll help every time. He always enables that which he commands. So then after being filled with the Spirit, then Paul gives some instructions to these new believers about what it looks like to, uh, like we looked at last week, in marriage. He gives instructions to wives. He gives instructions to husbands. Then next he gives instructions to children. And then we come to our text. So let me read it for us in chapter 6, verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. We see a very similar sentiment here in uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 and 25. And then Peter writes to the slave and master dynamic in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. This is a common sentiment to those that accepted Christ, now what? In their reality and in their context. Homes in those days had servants. And Paul knew that those that were, who were now in Christ, whether a servant or a master, must now know how to relate to one another. How does accepting Christ and following Christ relate to how I live? And Paul is seeking to address that. So let me be clear about this. Servants are not employees. In this time and culture, servants are not employees. They are slaves. Servants were actual property of their masters. So in light of that reality, Paul's not seeking to undo that at this time. He's just speaking into what is happening at the time. So Paul is encouraging those within that reality to serve with an attitude that brings God glory, which was the fifth point we're looking at about our theology of work. Paul is saying that in this context that the Christian slave or Christian master is not to presume on his or her Christianity as a justification for a disobedience or rudeness or harsh treatment. I'm going to heaven, so forget you. In fact, he desires that they set a new example in their midst, the example of Christ. This is why we see, I believe it's in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, there it is. Be imitators of God, therefore as dearly loved children. He's trying to help them know, wives, this is how it works in your life. Husbands, children, slaves, and masters, he's hitting everyone. And what life now looks like when you are in Christ. So even in the home, and in the relationship, the relationship to the gospel then is clear. 
So although we ourselves are not in the master-slave context, that is true, and I want to set that as different. It is different. The principles given in this text then can, be, can certainly be applied today to our lives in the employer-employee relationships. And in studying this, then we also get an answer to the question, or more answers to the question, why does work matter? So here's the first point. For those of you that like to take notes and think about such things throughout the week, lay your life on top of this point. Work matters because, work matters because we bring glory to God when we work with Christ in mind. Did you see that in the text? Let me read it for you as you're writing that note down. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not to win their favor as with their eyes on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. Obey as you would obey Christ, like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve as you would serve the Lord, your master in heaven. This is how Paul is writing to them. He's directing their attentions to these servants, and we could say that of ourselves as employees to those that are our employers or our superiors. How can we work in such a way that we have Christ in mind? What this means is that we consider the Lord's desires of us when we are at work and whatever we're doing at work. See, what would it look like to have this attitude at work? Going into work and punching in, waking up and getting ready to do the 10th load of laundry that you've done. <laughs> With what attitude would the Lord like this to be done? How would that change your world, your life, if you engaged your vocation with that question in mind? With what attitude would the Lord like this to be done? When would the Lord like this to be done? What if you ask that question? When would the Lord like this to be done? Hmm. Never put off tomorrow. What's the rest of the adage? What you could? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. What about this question? How would this change your work if you ask this question? How can I do this for the Lord's honor? See, how would, how would work look different for you with God's glory as the motivation? And, and Paul really hits the motive issue in verse 6 when he says, don't do all this when you, only when your superior is watching you. He's getting to the motive here, right? Some of us may do the good thing when we're being watched and when the boss is gone, then we do whatever we want to do, steal or whatever we do, steal time, steal from the company, steal from ourselves, steal from our friends. Don't only um, act like this. Don't only try to put on Christ or have Christ as the motivation when your boss is doing it, but... Live this way at work with Christ in mind. That's not the motive of the Christian to only do the right thing when you're being watched by your superior. The motive is to glorify Christ in our attitude and ethic. The motive in our work for Christians, Paul is saying, is found in our attitude and our ethics. Pastor and theologian John Piper says this of work, the essence of our work as humans must be that it is done in conscious reliance on God's power and in conscious quest of God's pattern of excellence and in deliberate aim to reflect God's glory. So whatever your vocation, God calls you to honor him, to reflect his image and to labor with all of your might. Whether you're in your sweet spot or you know you're just in a job that's going to be, it's just this season. It's okay to labor at it as if he is the boss. The secret is to honor God in the little things and to sanctify the ordinary. Do you think about that this week? Can you write that down? How can I sanctify the ordinary? 
I think it has everything to do with our attitude and ethic. How can I engage this next sales meeting? How can I sanctify? How will God use me to sanctify this meeting? How can God use me in this cubicle to sanctify the mundane? Martin Luther, the famous reformer, um, to paraphrase a story that he wrote, he was talking about fathers who change their um, babies' diapers, and even in that, God may receive glory. Is it possible? It's possible with every attitude and action we have to give God glory, to point ourselves back to him, our minds back to him, and to others to him by what we say and do. Number two, another point then to think about this week, why work matters. Work matters because we bring God glory when we treat others as he desires. So we bring God glory when we work with Christ in mind, and we bring God glory when we treat others as he desires. Do you know um, the greatest commandments, the greatest things that the Lord wants of us for those that are in Christ are to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is linked to it. You can't, they're, they're, they're dependent upon others, to love others as yourself, yeah. They're linked. So somehow, by the way that we treat others, attention is given to God. Somehow, by the way that we love others, we now have loved God. So we bring God glory when we treat others as he desires. Did you see that in the text? Look at verse 5 again. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Work matters because we can be a blessing to others who are engaging. How we work matters because we can be a blessing to others. Did you see the others-centeredness in this text? Between the employer and employee, employee and employer, we see these different words that really are focusing um, the worker's attention on their superior. We see this phrase, obey. In fact, First Peter talks about obeying our authority structures that are set up in our lives. That's a way to glorify God. But we see this word, obey, to obey our superiors. Of course, only when it doesn't contradict God's word. And if you're in a position that you have to contradict God's word, often I challenge you to talk to another Christian friend about that. I'm sure some of you are in a really tough spot. We need godly wisdom to how to engage that. But the word obey, if you'd like a childlike definition for your own children about obedience, here's one to try on in your home. Willingly doing what you've been asked to do. Which is different than this, right? (laughs) Up the stairs, go clean your room, pound, pound, pound. And listen, kids and students, just so you know, kids grow up to be adults that do the same thing in their hearts. The boss asks one more thing of you, and it wasn't on your plan to do this one more thing. How could Christ be seen in your response in that moment? In all sincerity, obey. Would it be possible that your obedience would turn someone on to know Christ? Wouldn't that be amazing? Willingly doing what you've been asked to do, not begrudgingly. We see this that Paul says in this other-centered view that we ought to have that brings God glory is that we're supposed to show respect or or fear, like that's an awe, a respect for the authority that is in your life. To be sincere of heart, generous, honest is what that would mean. And then we see this phrase, to serve wholeheartedly. I think that's verse 7. Serve wholeheartedly. Wholeheartedly means enthusiastically. In fact, uh, the, Greek, the literal Greek translation of that phrase would mean um, working from the soul. <laughs> to, to work as if Someone else's life depends on your attitude and ethic. Working from the soul, a sincerity, a transparency and honesty about 
your intentionality. See, all these attitudes bless others and in the end, direct glory to God. To bless others with our attitude is a motive that God desires and brings glory to him. Have you ever worked with somebody like this before? Another job I had in high school that was set up by my parents, ironically. My mom worked at a greenhouse grower. People would send seedlings to this greenhouse and they would grow it up to a size and then this um, place would send them out to Target stores and a store that's in the Midwest called Jewel Osco. And uh, from time to time, this place would also send out teams to go set up little greenhouses in the parking lots of these grocery stores. And uh, I had a, uh, a blessing of a spring break to be sent out to do this job. That's sarcasm. I had no interest, Mom. And so I got to go on this trip to the Ch- Chicago area to set up a couple greenhouses in the parking lot of Jewel Osco's there. And um, I worked with a foreman, and his name was Kevin. And I need to tell you this about Kevin. Kevin wasn't my most favorite person in all of um, Lortzma Sales' uh, growing company, but uh, he was someone that I was glad that he was my boss. So there's other people that made me laugh more, that I enjoyed more, I had more in common with, but Kevin was an awesome boss because I didn't know what I was doing building these greenhouses. And he was slow to anger, abounding in patience. Aren't those attributes of the Lord? I wanted to be on his team because I knew that he had a pace that was intentional. He knew what he was doing, and he'd help me know how to do what I was supposed to do. See, I think when other people have this attitude of working as if uh, it matters and working as if I want to be a blessing to others and to engage others, I think it causes attention to other people to ask themselves, why do you do what you do? And the only answer back, which is a famous Southbridge response, is, oh, because of Jesus. And I wanted to be around Kevin. I wanted to be on Kevin's team. If I had to have a boss, I wanted Kevin to be my boss. There's other people that I had more fun with, but if I have to work and I have to have a boss, I'd want it to be Kevin. What's it like working with you? Does how you work turn others to consider their own lives and feel that they're blessed because they work with you? They see, do they see like the, the character of God in your life, how you engage your superiors or even those that are under you? So let's ask this question then. We know what it's like maybe to work with a boss that's great, but let's ask this question. We want to be honest at Southbridge. How do you keep on doing well in a job when your boss is a jerk? <laughs> Can we talk like that here? Because the fact is that some people are jerks, right? At least we decided. We're never jerks. Everyone else is a jerk. And the truth is that not, although we're to love everyone, not everyone's lovely, are they? And God knows this firsthand because he loves us. So Paul gives us the answer to that. And I can actually tell you a story about this. Another job that was signed up for me, or I signed up for, I can't remember, no, my parents signed up for me, was uh, working with a, a company that I was digging ditches. And my boss in this job was sitting on a Kubota crane like this, leaning over the wheel and watching me and another high schooler dig a ditch that was about this, just longer than my arms. And he was in a crane that was, the bucket was just about wider than my arms. And I'm not very bright and I didn't take physics in high school. I just had basic math in college. But I thought that the bucket was the same size and shape of the ditch that my friend and I were supposed to dig. Hmm. And so the heat's just resonating off me. It could have been winter and I would have been hot. And, uh, this guy gets off his crane after um, being agitated with how we're shoveling and proceeds to tell me that I'm shoveling wrong. I wasn't using the end of it. I wasn't using the, the handle to try to shovel. I wasn't using the back end of the shovel to try to shovel. He just came down and took the shovel out of my hands and told me I was shoveling wrong, and I was livid. <laughs> how, how do you shovel wrong? The dirt's being moved, and get on your crane and move the dirt! 
So how do you engage someone? How do you engage someone that you think and you've decided is a jerk? Paul gives the answer. Are you ready? And it's humbling. It actually has nothing to do with them. Paul gives us the answer. Paul's answer is this. Stop thinking about your boss as your main supervisor and start working for the Lord. Look through the supervisor to the sovereign Lord and don't worry about the supervisor's thoughtlessness. See, what would it be like to, to ask God to help you see your boss the way he does? Your boss is, he or she is someone in need of a savior and if they have Christ, they need grace just as if someone doesn't have Christ. They need grace from you. They need mercy from you just as you receive from God every day. In fact, your grace and mercy and response them might be the only glimpse of Christ they may ever see ever. And God wants to use you as an instrument to torque that heart for them to turn the light to trans- them to recognize I need Christ. So you can dig a ditch for that, can't you? For someone else's eternity? How we relate to our employer is an opportunity for the gospel to be put on display is the point. Let's flip the question. How should a manager or a boss, maybe you're one, an employer, relate to employees, even the difficult ones? And Paul gives the answer. Did you see it in verse 9? Let's look at it together. Verse 9, we got to fly here. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master, capital M, and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Paul's answer, and for those of you that oversee other people, and especially overseeing difficult people, how we do that? Paul's answer is, live as though you understand that Jesus Christ is your master. And you treat your employees in the same way that you've come to experience how Jesus Christ, your master, treats you. And how does Christ treat us, loved ones? What do the scriptures say? With grace and mercy, kindness and truthfulness, Christ confronts for sure. Doesn't mean we don't have hard talks with people. Doesn't mean we always fake agree. Can't do that. That'd be wrong. But with grace and mercy and kindness to us, this is how we would ought to relate then to those that we supervise. So how you relate to your employees is an opportunity for the gospel to put on display. Same thoughts as how you relate to your employer. That's what Paul's driving at for these people. He wants them to know how Christ changes the reality of their lives, doesn't change the circumstances of their lives. People still get cancer when they have Christ. Little children still break bones. But it changes our perspective of our circumstances. It changes our motives and our attitudes when Christ is in all and through all and ruling us. And this is why Christ can say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, that it only doesn't affect us with our attitudes, but it can affect other people. Jesus says this, In the same way, let your light shine before men that they might see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. That means this, that the way that you live can somehow turn someone else on who hasn't acknowledged the Lord that they might praise God in heaven because of how you live. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't you be humble to have such a circumstance? So how can your good work and attitude as an employer or employee in turn lead others to praise God? I want you to think about that this week. It's really tough for the self-employed, isn't it? Because you're your boss and your own employee. Maybe you bother yourself. This is a way of connecting others to Christ for life change, which is the ultimate assigned goal to every Christian is to make disciples. Not just pastors making them. Everyone who calls himself a Christian, your job, according to God's word, is to make disciples. One more reason why work matters. Look at verse 7 again. Over and over again, we just, this is what you can do in your own Bible study. Go over and over it again and pulling out the truths that are there. Back to verse 7 again. Serve wholeheartedly as if you are serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. Another reason why work matters in relationship to bringing God glory 
is work matters because bringing God glory reaps God's reward. That's the third point. Think about that this week. Work matters because bringing God glory reaps, reaps God's reward. Now it's interesting because in Matthew chapter 5, we're supposed to, our good deeds might be seen before men where they turn and praise God, but in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. He's really speaking about the Pharisees who do things to be acknowledged to themselves by other people, how good they are, how great they are, how godly they are. Jesus says this by that motive. If you do that, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So in one chapter, he talks about being seen, and in another chapter, he talks about not being seen, but it's all about the motive. See, comparing that verse to the promise of receiving a reward from God in Ephesians is all about the motive, isn't it? And listen to this thought right here, and I'll say it slow and I'll say it twice. Working to be praised by others receives nothing, receives nothing of eternal value. And working so that others would praise God is everything. And that's the distinction between Matthew 5 and Matthew 6. I'll say it again. Working to be praised by others receives nothing of eternal value. Working so that others would praise God is everything. This is why Paul, who's working as an apostle and an evangelist, who gets put in chains for telling people about Jesus Christ, he counts that joy. He thinks that's great that he gets to suffer for Jesus because then others are coming to know Christ. Others are turning to know more about the Lord because of his work, and that's the point. A person that's truly broken, someone who used to pride himself in his own greatness and awesomeness and how good of a, um, a goody two-shoes he was. I haven't used that phrase in a couple decades. Do you ever feel guilty about going to work when you could be doing ministry? Who said your work wasn't ministry? Who decided that? If you're in the workplace and you spend hours in front of your computer and hours in meetings and hours in a little cubicle, do you feel guilty about that versus doing real ministry? Who said those things weren't doing ministry? Who told you that? Who, we need to know who told you that lie. Life is ministry. Ephesians 2.10 says that when you said yes to Jesus Christ, God is creating you. He's, he calls you a masterpiece. The word is poema, which means work of art. And he's sculpting you and making you. And the rest of the verse says this, to do good works which he prepared for you to advance to do, which means he had good things for you to be about from the beginning of time. And I believe that includes your vocation. So when you're doing vocation with God as your master in mind for the blessing of others to his glory in which you receive a reward, that's ministry. Because when you stop doing the good works that God prepared, when you've accomplished all of them, guess what? You're home. You're dead. You get to be home with him. So the fact that you're breathing still in and out means there's still more for you to do in ministry so that others would come to know Christ. Don't believe that lie. You're not doing ministry when you're at, at work. That's a lie from, the, from Satan. Every little thing you do that is good is seen, the scripture says here. Every little, good, every little thing that you do that is good is seen and valued by the Lord. And he graciously chooses to reward good things done in faith. Not one thing is done in vain. Not that extra load of laundry, the diaper you change. For those of you that take care of parents at home and you think no one notices and what good comes out of this, why does this work matter? That's not going unseen. You're honoring your parents. For those that have a job where the boss is terrible and you never know what's going to be demanded of you next week, you just know it's going to be awful. That can, that's not done in vain. For those of you that have employees that criticize you and think you're a jerk because you want things to go well because your money is on the line, it's your neck on the line. It's your reputation on the line. And being a great manager of other people and a great a lover of people, that's not seen. That's not done in vain, regardless of what they say. God is going to reward, this is what the scripture says, God is going to reward you in the same terms as the most famous Christian you can think of. 
because there is no partiality with God. In fact, Christ says that for those that think they're the best, they'll probably be least, and those that are least are the best. Who's, who's judging who? God's the judge. And he's the one that loves to give the good gifts. Whether slave or free, the scripture says, your good is recorded and rewarded. And what is the reward? I need to be honest with you. I'm not sure of, uh, I don't have a full grasp on all the rewards that are possible. I know in scripture, a reward of our faith is salvation, a faith that's given by God's grace to us. We know that there's a reward of more of his character in our lives, his character of peace, patience, love, joy, mercy. And we know this of God. He's an amazing gift giver, and he's got rewards that he thinks you want. And it's not selfish to want them. In fact, he says, you fathers on heaven, on earth, know to give good gifts? I'm the best, and no one can trump me. So who wants to be in relationship with me, is what he's saying. And I do not give as the world gives. And I do not give on partiality. I give accurately, and I give in fullness. And I'm ready to give these gifts. And I don't think that they'd be the kind of gifts that are temporal, really. I think they're going to be the kind of gifts that are eternal, like his character, salvation. There can be temporary gifts, though. He's big. <laughs> he's capable if he's willing. And he wants to give them. So things to think about this week. Work with Christ in mind to be a blessing to others and to pursue the reward which he longs to give. Will you pray with me? Lord, for this morning, thank you. And thank you for your word. Thank you for each person that's here. God, and I ask for those that are looking for work that don't have it, Lord, would you please, please give it to them. Whatever you're teaching them during this time of pursuing you, Lord, please, I don't know if it needs to be hastened. You know that alone. But God, you know their needs. You promise to meet needs. And Lord, I pray for those that are working in environments that are difficult. They're, they're not sure how Christ can be seen, Lord. Would you, uh, would you lift these people up? For those, Lord, that have employees that are hard to work with, Lord, lift them up. Give them the grace to shine for you. May each of us, Lord, in the vocation you give us, shine for you so that others may come to know you and praise you and so that you may receive praise and glory. Lord, that we would live a life that reflects Christ. To live is to live for you and to die would be to be with you. God, I ask that you'll give us a hunger for your word like never before. May we say, as Christ says, that our work is to do your will. Our food is to do your will. We thirst and hunger for righteousness, and you'll fill us, Lord. Lord, change our minds, our perceptions, if need be, about our work, about our vocation, that we may live for your glory and your glory alone, for your praise, for your reward, and not the empty words from others, Lord. Lord, we just lay these things at your feet. We've got nowhere else to go because you alone hold the keys to eternal life. Where would we go? We bring our cares and anxieties for you because you care for us. May we find rest in you on this day, on this Sunday, Lord. May we find refreshment in you so that we may shine for you all week. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.